Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. When all four of the engines failed. And so when the pilot came to tell the three passengers that he was carrying what had happened, he also shared with them the unfortunate news that there were only three parachutes on board. And he proceeded to tell them that since he was the pilot, one of them was his. And so he immediately put a parachute on and jumped out of the plane. And that left a brilliant scientist, a retired clergyman, and a college student who was traveling to go hiking. And immediately, the brilliant scientist stood up and said, I have the greatest mind in the world today, and the world needs me. And so without hesitation, he grabbed a parachute and jumped out of the plane. And so at that point, the clergyman began to look at the college student and explain to her that he had lived a long life and that he had confidence that he was going to go to heaven when he died and so that she should take the last parachute. She stopped him before he could finish and he said, no, 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 really, it's okay because the world's greatest mind just jumped out of the plane with my backpack on. <laughs> so you see, humility can go a long way, could even save your life. As we continue this series on cultivating Christian virtue that we began last week, we're going to look at this virtue of humility. And it's one of the paradoxes, one of the many paradoxes of Christianity, that the way up is down. The way to grow up is to grow down in humility. And we are lifted up by descending into glory. Descending to glory by this virtue of humility. Now, of course, this truth is not universally embraced. Some imagine that we attain glory by drawing attention to ourselves and all of our achievements and boasting about those things. Or glory is obtained by crafting a resume or even craft, crafting a life that declares we are the best. We're the best people. Or by making sure that we win every argument or that we never admit that we're wrong. Or by living, dressing, and apparently Instagramming by the motto, if you've got it, flaunt it. But that is not the way of biblical wisdom. Instead, like courage, humility is actually necessary in order to live a good and healthy life. I mean, think about it. Humility is necessary for learning. Because you have to admit that there's stuff that you don't know and things that are yet to be discovered. Humility is essential for healthy relationships that we have with other people who have differing wants, differing needs, differing desires, different preferences and interests and talents and values. And so there is a requirement of humility, and it's required for respectful civil discourse about complex issues. But ultimately, humility is important because we need it in order to live a godly life. And we can't relate to God properly without humility. We've actually already heard in our call to worship this morning, the Lord says this in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, this is the one that God will look upon with favor and enter into fellowship and relationship with, the one who is humble. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, or 23, verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We're also told on more than one occasion in the Bible that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of these occasions that we read about this is in 1 Peter 
It's in chapter 5, and that's our text for this morning, actually. 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open it to 1 Peter. We're going to read the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats nearby in front of you. And our text is on page 590 in those paperback Bibles. But again, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read the first seven verses. So if you're able, let's stand for the reading of the word. This is God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Well, in giving our attention to the virtue of humility this morning, we're going to devote our time to these three points. Defining humility, demonstrating humility, and developing humility. Those three points. And it seems proper to start with defining humility. Well, various words in our Bibles are translated by the English words humble, and humility. The most common Old Testament word comes from the Hebrew avanah, whereas the words for humble and humility in our Greek text come from the Greek root word tapenos. But you can probably hear in those words that our English word for humility doesn't come to us from either the Greek or the Hebrew. Like courage, it actually comes to us from a Latin word, and the Latin word is humilitas. I know most of you don't care about these word origins, but the reason I share those three with you is because they all share the same connotation. All three of those words, the Hebrew word, the Greek word, the Latin word, all share the same connotation. It has to do with being low. Being low, as in low to the ground. That's this root connotation associated with these words. But this can be understood in a couple different ways. It could be understood as being put low by others or lowering oneself, being put low by others, or lowering oneself. And it's the latter that captures what is meant by the Christian virtue of humility. Instead of meaning being put low by others, that's actually more properly expressed in English by the word humiliation, to be put low by others. But the practice of biblical humility should be understood as a willing, voluntary lowering of ourselves. A willing and voluntary lowering of ourselves. In fact, this is something we're intentionally called to seek out to do. But it's something we're willing to do. It's something we're voluntarily doing rather than something that's being forced on us from the outside. That kind of lowering is better understood as humiliation. So defining humility this way as voluntary voluntarily lowering ourselves, actually allows us to presuppose rather than deny 
personal dignity. This preserves personal dignity because the person who is exercising humility is actually acting from a height from which he or she willingly lowers himself or herself for others. Presupposes rather than denies personal worth and dignity. And so it's important for us to recognize that biblical humility is not to be confused at all with things like self-deprecation or even worse, self-loathing or worse still, self-hatred. That's not what biblical humility has to do with. In fact, these things are actually inconsistent with a biblical view of human worth and dignity that's rooted in being created in God's image. These things actually have no place with the Christian view of the self. So we should differentiate humility from these kinds of things, but at the same time, humility also shouldn't be seen as a denial of our gifts or our natural talents or some kind of dismissal of the reality of roles, different callings, and positions that people have. Being humble doesn't require us to deny any of these things. For example, Peter says in verse 5 in our text, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. But even in this very context, he recognizes and affirms that some people have leadership responsibilities within that group that they are to faithfully fulfill. To fulfill those responsibilities is not lacking humility. Now, humility then certainly excludes thinking more of ourselves than we should. But biblical humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves either. In fact, humble people are simply able to honestly assess themselves, their strengths and their weaknesses. A humble person can be honest about that assessment. But an honest assessment of ourselves in truth requires assessing ourselves as we are before God in light of Scripture. We're not honestly assessing ourselves unless we are assessing ourselves as we are before God in light of Scripture. Author C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so Mahaney is right that humility flows from beholding the perfect glorious, supreme holiness and beauty of God and honestly acknowledging how far short we fall of his standards. That's what produces humility. And yet if we stop with just what Mahaney writes in defining humility, we miss a vital component to the biblical virtue of humility. And that component is the relational component. There's a relational component to biblical humility. In other words, Humility isn't to be thought of as merely concerned with the way we think about ourselves privately, the way we assess our own status or stature. Regardless of how high or how low we think about our own status or stature, it's not merely a private thought that we have about ourselves. Tim Keller captures this well, I think, when he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's not this preoccupation of how we stack up. That's not biblical humility. It's not this self-obsession of our assessment. We see this actually in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's not necessarily that they are more significant, 
but willingly count them so. You see the relational component here. It has to do with others. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we actually have to say more than what Keller says. Keller says it's thinking of ourselves less. Yes, that's true. But it also involves thinking of others more. Biblical humility thinks of others more. And so in defining humility, we could say this. I know that's a lot to write down. I'm not going to leave it up there for very long, so you might want to take a picture if you want to keep it. But let's say this in defining humility. The essence of biblical humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of the truth of God's holiness and grace along with a heartfelt commitment to forego our personal status, to employ our personal resources, and to use our personal influence for the good of others before ourselves. That's the essence of biblical humility. But there's one other thing we should probably actually add there. And that is, we do all of this after the example of our Lord Jesus. We're following him in this pattern. Because we have to understand that more than just understanding what humility is, and more than even just admiring humility, we are called to live a life of demonstrating humility. And so that's the second thing we have to look at, demonstrating humility. And we learn about demonstrating humility by looking at the example of Jesus, the supreme example of Jesus. In fact, the call to humility that we just looked at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, is actually rooted and grounded in the example of Jesus himself. We read verses 3 and 4, to in humility count others as more significant than yourself. But this is what verse 5 says. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind is that? This mind of humility that counts others as more significant, that looks not only to our interests but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was himself divine, but didn't count that for himself. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In other words, Jesus willingly lowered himself. He humbled himself in service to others, and he humbled himself by encountering the shame and the suffering of the cross for the sake of others. So we see this humility demonstrated ultimately by Jesus on the cross. But he lived a life of humility. We see it on another occasion, actually, when Jesus willingly lowered himself in humility in service to others and washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. This washing of the feet was actually the lowest task to be taken on in that kind of context. And yet Jesus was willing to do that. But we read something very important in John chapter 13. In verse 14, Jesus says this to his disciples there on that occasion. After he washes their feet, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate humility in his ministry. He demands humility from those who follow him and those who call him Lord and teacher. If I'm your Lord and teacher and I've done this, then you are to do this as well. He demonstrates it, but demands it as well. We read of this demand in Mark chapter 10. He's talking to his disciples and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's a call to humility. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's 
a call to humility. And yet, even this call to humility in Mark chapter 10 is rooted in the example of Jesus. We've actually heard it already this morning in our assurance of pardon that David read earlier. Right after this, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this demand for humility, Jesus isn't calling us to do anything he hasn't already exemplified and demonstrated in his own ministry. And yet there is a distinction because none of us actually give our lives as a ransom for another person. That was unique to the ministry and the work of our Redeemer. So what does demonstrating humility in our life look like? Well, there are actually two directions in which we can demonstrate humility, and we find them here in the text. In verse 5, we can exercise humility toward one another. Toward one another. Verse 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. But another way that we demonstrate humility is under God. They look slightly different, our humility under God, which we see in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humbling ourselves toward others, humbling ourselves under God. What does the demonstration of those things look like? Well, if we look at toward others, it consists of a number of things. A willingness and eagerness to serve. This is what Peter is talking about. In verse 3, serve others willingly. Serve others eagerly. And for those who are younger, he talks about exercising a sincere submission to those in proper positions of authority and leadership. This is a demonstration of humility, recognizing authority and leadership of others who are in our lives. Also involves listening to others. One of the clearest ways that we demonstrate humility And one of the best ways we actually serve others is in this very common everyday task of listening, really listening to someone. It's a demonstration of humility. Listening is actually worthy of its own sermon as a virtue. It's very important. It plays a very prominent role in the scriptures, actually. But it's it's a demonstration of humility. Along with that, maintaining a teachable and correctable spirit. Is actually involved in all of these things. That's a sincere submission to those in authority and have things to teach us. It's a role of listening, but to maintain a teachable, correctable spirit is a demonstration of humility, as is giving up personal preferences, giving up insisting on our own way to do things, and in place of that, considering others as more significant than ourselves, looking not to our interests, but to the interests of others over our own, not insisting in our own way. This is done in the the, the everyday occurrences that we have in our relationships. There's endless opportunities to do this, to share with those in need, to share your resources and not think only of yourself, but thinking of others, doing what other people want to do, watching what other people want to watch, listening to what other people want to listen to, playing what other people want to play, not insisting on your way, but thinking first of others. Well, demonstrating humility under God actually is similarly exhibited in some ways because it involves listening as well. But here we could say it's exemplified by listening to God, by committing time to his word. That's where we hear God speak to us. So it's a demonstration of of our humility under God to devote time to scripture reading. It's the arrogant heart that doesn't do that. But we listen to the Lord, and in listening to the Lord, we read with a desire to submit to him 
in obedience with what we read and maintaining a teachable, correctable spirit as we are before him. So these actually are very common to the demonstration of humility toward others. But there are some distinct ones as we think about how we demonstrate humility under God. For example, expressing gratitude for every success and every achievement that we experience. Expressing gratitude acknowledges that regardless of how hard we've worked, and we may have worked really hard for these successes and achievements, they ultimately are gifts that the Lord has given us by his grace. And when we're thankful, we're demonstrating that humility of receiving gifts from the Lord. Also acknowledging complete and utter dependence upon the Lord through prayer. Casting all of our anxiety upon him, as the text tells us. That's a demonstration of humility. To cast our anxieties upon the Lord. To have him deal with what we can't deal with. We have to humbly acknowledge that we can't handle everything. And prayer is a way of entrusting that to the Lord. Acknowledging our weakness. Prayer is a demonstration of humility. But also exercising patience and trust in the midst of our trials. This takes humility to admit that the Lord is wiser than we are and that his ways are best, even if we don't understand them. That we trust that even in the midst of difficult trials, he cares for us. It's what the text says, cast all your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. Humility is demonstrated by exercising patience and trust in the midst of trials. Now, of course, these are not exhaustive lists at all, are they? There are countless ways that we can demonstrate humility toward others and demonstrate humility under God. But anyone who thinks they've mastered the biblical virtue of humility has by that very notion revealed that they have not yet mastered it. Because we always have more room to grow. We can always grow in humility. And how do we do that? What would that look like? What does that entail? Well, that brings us to the third thing, developing humility. How do we develop humility? Well, I want to mention a number of things here uh, in developing humility. Let me start with this, Bible reading and prayer. Not only are these demonstrations of humility, but they also help us develop humility. These are just fundamental things. Reading the scriptures will consistently confront you with the greatness and holiness of your God. And that will humble you. Prayer, regularly praying, is a constant admission of your weakness and dependence upon the Lord. It's a declaration of, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's what prayer confesses. And so it will develop humility in us as we commit to these disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. But in addition to reading the Bible, I would encourage you to read and reflect upon God's attributes. Read things about God's attributes. Reflect upon his greatness. There's nothing that's quite so humbling as pondering the greatness of who God is in his being. All-knowing, all-powerful, self-existing. He's never been taught anything by anybody because he's never had to be taught anything by anybody. Reflect upon creation as well. His handiwork as creator. And for that, I would recommend reading some books on cosmology, reading some books on astronomy. Go to Guillermo and ask him some, some friendly books he can read on even his own book. But it's a humbling thing to think about the vastness of the universe and our place in it 
and to think about how great God must be to have created all of this. Ponder those things. But as you reflect upon the greatness of God's attributes, also reflect upon the depths of your own sin. Reflect upon the depths of your own sin because what this will do is will keep you from thinking that you're better than you are. And it will keep you from thinking that you're better than other people. If you're reflecting upon the depths of your own sin, it will instill in you the attitude of there, but by the grace of God, go I. The minute I'm left to myself, I would wander into ruin if it weren't for the grace of the Lord. That's a humbling thing. Now, I wrote down uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 100 through 152, because I would suggest that one of the ways you can expose the depths of your own sinfulness is to read those questions and answers from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 100 through 152, they deal with the Ten Commandments. I don't know how anybody could read through that section of the Larger Catechism and come away thinking that they're an upright individual morally and not desperately in need of a Savior. (laughs) They are humbling questions and answers. So you can find those online. Just look them up, read through them. wouldn't take you very long. Very humbling. But... Don't just wallow in your guilt after after you reflect upon the depths of your own sin because we can also contemplate the grace and love of God displayed through Jesus on the cross. Contemplate the depth of that love and that grace. Grace that's undeserved, unmerited, demerited actually because of your rebellion. You have forfeited all those blessings and yet you're the recipient of that love and that grace, that has a humbling effect. We've actually already sung about it today. When we sung the wondrous cross, these words are in there. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. Now listen to this. And poor contempt on all my pride. The cross has a dual effect of reminding us of what our sins cost, but at the same time, the depths of the love and grace that the Lord Jesus has shown us by paying for those sins. It's humbling to know that you're that loved. And what that can lead to, actually, is being able to confess our sins to God and others regularly. That's a humbling thing, too. That's how to develop humility. It's a demonstration and a way to develop humility. Confess your sins to God and to others regularly. Stop editing yourself And presenting this flattering picture. Be honest and transparent about your struggles, your weakness, about your needs, about your failures. And you can be humble in that and bold in that confession if you're grounding your identity, dignity, and worth in the gospel. In other words, if you're grounding your identity in being loved by God and knowing that your glory is secure in him, you're going to be able to be humble before others. You're going to be able to willingly lower yourself for the sake of others because your identity and your glory is secure. We actually see this very thing happening in John chapter 13, right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet. John bothers to tell us this about Jesus. Listen to these words. It says that Jesus... No, this is right before he washes the disciples' feet. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, then he rose from supper, 
laid aside his outer garments, took the towel, tied it around his waist, washed the disciples' feet. Do you understand what that's telling us right there? Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew his identity as the eternal Son of God. Jesus knew that his glory was secure in the Father. And because he knew that, he was free to lower himself for the sake of others. And the same is to be true for us. We see this even in our text. Verse 1, Peter says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He's secure in his glory. In verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You're going to receive the crown of glory too. That's secure for you, believer. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Listen, Christian. You're a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. You are royalty. And when your identity is grounded and rooted in that, when you know that your inheritance and glory is secure in that, you don't have to compete with other people for glory. Instead, you're free to willingly and voluntarily lower yourself and humble yourself in service to others. And so, serve. It's another way to develop humility. You develop it by serving others. Serve as, as many ways as you possibly can. Serve in hard ways especially. Especially those who won't know that you're serving them. And especially those who won't be able to repay you for serving them. These things develop humility. But not only serve, be served by others. And I know the reality is that this is actually harder for some of you than serving others. Because it exposes your own need for care and grace and help. So don't resist being served either as a way to develop humility. Some other things as well we can note. Practice Thanksgiving daily. One author has written that Thanksgiving is a soil in which pride does not grow easily. A thankful heart is a humble heart. So practice Thanksgiving daily. Practice affirming others in place of criticizing others. Think about ways that you can build others up rather than thinking about how you can always use others to build yourself up. Think about others by thinking about how you can affirm them. Fast. Fast as a practice of self-imposed weakness and need to remind yourself of your own frailty and dependence upon the Lord's provision. This actually increases thanksgiving as well. Without faithful, the Lord has provided the needs that we have for our bodies. But fasting is a way to develop humility as well. Something you might not think about, adopt godly forms of sleep and Sabbath rest. These are actually forms of humility because what we're doing on a daily and a weekly basis is acknowledging our limits as creatures. We are not limitless. I see posters and advertisements all the time today talking about how we're limitless. I see these things in the gym and I think, what delusion are these people living under? We're not limitless. I can't even keep myself awake for longer than like 18 or 19 hours. Humility embraces that and accepts my creaturely limitations while at the same time joyfully accepting that I'm not the creator. I'm not the creator. I can develop humility by getting godly patterns of sleep 
and by setting aside a day each week today for a day of rest. Some things that might be particularly difficult because they're difficult for me. Invite criticism and correction from others. Like actually initiate it. Go to people and ask them to share with you how you can grow, how you can get better, what some of your weaknesses are. Now, of course, you have to respond to that feedback humbly if you expect them to honestly answer that question, but it's a great way to develop humility, as is reading and listening to people with whom you know that you're going to disagree. That helps us develop humility. We're stuck in these echo chambers, right? We're only hearing what we want to hear. But go outside of that. That can help us develop humility. But above all, above all, keep your eyes focused on Jesus who rescued us from something that we could not rescue ourselves from. The acknowledgement that we could not rescue ourselves from that is a humbling acknowledgement. But he rescued us. But he also rescued us by humility, by humbling himself and going to the cross. And so he is our ultimate example, our model, and our motive for humility. And I want to end by considering this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, first we thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus who humbled himself that we might be saved. We pray now for the grace that you would work in us by your spirit and by our purposeful discipline that you would cultivate in our hearts and our lives the humility after the example of our Lord. Would you do this for us by your grace? May we be deliberate about it in Jesus' name.